1: Good morning and welcome to Rising. Happy Monday. Thanks for tuning in. How was your weekend, Brianna? It was good, restful. And you? Not so restful. I was hosting a student libertarian conference, LibertyCon, in Washington D.C. It was a lot of fun, lots of chatting, conversation. I was on, on my feet all weekend, so I'm a little bit hoarse. So b- bear with me. I may make you do a lot of the heavy reading today. All right.
0: Well, I, well I'll start us off then. How about
1: that? Hey, thank you very
0: much. All right. Well, new NBC polling finds former President Trump ahead with a narrow but growing lead in a hypothetical matchup against President Joe Biden. Donald Trump has 47% of voter support, up one point since November, while Joe. Biden Biden has 42 percent support, minus two points since November. Just 37 percent of voters said they approve of Joe Biden's job performance thus far. That's compared to 60 percent who disapprove. That's the lowest approval rate at the start of a reelection year for any of the last four presidents. Among independents, Trump leads Biden in a general election matchup by 18 points, 48 to 29 percent.
1: President Biden won South Carolina's Democratic primary this weekend, with about 4 percent of registered Democrats turning out to vote. DNC Chair Jamie Harrison touted Biden's victory on MSNBC yesterday. Let's watch.
2: So then, uh, uh, Chairman, should the president be concerned then with new NBC News polling showing his approval rating at an all-time low, 37 percent, and his narrowly uh, trailing Trump? Well, listen, Jonathan, you know how I feel about polls. The polls (laughs) also said that Joe Biden was only going to get 69 percent of the vote in South Carolina yesterday. He got 96 percent. The best way to predict how people will vote is to look at how they're actually voting last night joe biden beat the polls in south carolina and he got a major major vote and it was a major show of strength and enthusiasm for the president and
1: meanwhile over on late night georgia activist and rapper killer mike told bill maher why he won't be endorsing anyone this election season
2: my feeling is pick your policy not your person find out this <laughs> is <laughs> This is not the Dallas Cowboys versus your favorite team. This is this is the policies that will affect our generations for the next 20, 30, 40 years to come. So close your eyes, listen to the policies that are being pushed, and and pay attention, even to the people who don't have a chance of winning, because they're gonna say policies you may want to push. And I would say do that, but make it policy-based. So, policy. so that means therefore. That means I'm, I'm for black people in happy Black History Month. But you're not you're not saying one candidate over the other. Hey man, my ain't gonna get me in no trouble tonight. <laughs>
0: Killer Mike notably endorsed Bernie Sanders in the last round and has advocated for all of those big tip policies um, that do, frankly, disproportionately hurt working class, low income, and disproportionately black people in the United States of America, like uh, free education, um, free—he was a big advocate of free trade schools in particular. I remember him getting into an argument, I think, on Bill Maher's show, where he says that uh, canceling student debt is for elites, and he says, well, my kid goes to trade school, and Bernie Sanders would cancel student debt for my kid as well, and it was a really, um, I think informative and informed exchange. That being said, it is really interesting to see Bill Maher pressure Killer Mike to try to say what particular candidate he wants to endorse when he just finished saying that his priority should be and that he thinks people should be focused more on the policies that these individuals are representing.
1: It's nice to know that Killer Mike is not part of the PSYOP. (laughs)
0: Sure. But Jamie Harrison, um, by comparison, arguably is. So the Biden team, the Democrats, are really pushing this narrative coming out of South Carolina where there were absolutely no surprises that the overwhelming victory of Joe Biden indicates a level of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. But that seemed like a little bit of a coping mechanism around the fact that only 4% of South Carolina voters came out to vote at all, which might be an indication that Biden is just not a very popular president, even if he performs better than Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson because of largely name recognition.
1: His approval numbers, you know, those polls we just showed are sobering. Um, The White House should be panicked. His re-election team should be panicked. Um, Poll after poll shows him losing to Donald Trump. Um, It's closer in a few of the swing states. I think in Pennsylvania and Arizona, it's a little bit close, and that matters. Long campaign season still to come. We haven't heard very much from Donald Trump, and I wonder if things will change once we start regularly hearing from him, when the media starts covering him and actually allowing voters to hear what he has to say, if they're going to allow that at all. They seem to be inclined to think that's— you know, reckless for democracy to actually let one sure. of the candidates speak and <laughs> his name actually appear on the ballot. Um, but uh, but I digress. These are—look, it's just bad news for Joe Biden. Now, there were some good economic indicators um, in the last few days, um, a lot of healthy growth this uh, in this recent period of time, so Which maybe— Donald
0: Trump is taking credit for, saying that the stock market sees that <laughs> right. I'm likely they to know. win, and therefore they're preemptively— Showing good numbers in the stock market, yeah. it's it's incredible stuff. I mean, look, there's a lot of ways that you can try to force these tea leaves in your uh, direction. But I want to make just a couple of points. It's notable that uh, they were doing victory laps around Marion Williamson for her defeat in New Hampshire, but in South Carolina, where she barely made an effort, didn't really invest anything at all because it is such a a state that goes so overwhelmingly for Biden. That is why the DNC rigged it, rigged the primary so that it came first uh, in in the in in, the, in line. Um, Um, and was prioritized. She still managed to beat uh, Dean Phillips, despite him having much, m- much more in the way of resources, uh, getting almost twice as many votes as he did. And the important point to note is when we're talking about how uh, voter enthusiasm and whether or not the 4 percent is an indicator is that in 2020, 16 percent of the electorate voted in the primary, and in 2016, 12 percent voted in the primary. And you can say, well, yes, there were more competitive primaries. There wasn't an incumbent Democrat in those years, and that's a fair point. But I still do think this, these statistics— combined with some of the um, qualitative information we're getting from voters about their enthusiasm levels, plus the overall enthusiasm polls that we read up up top, are not a um, positive harbinger for Democrats right now.
1: I saw someone on social media um, asking When was the last time the Republican candidate for president led the Democratic candidate for president so consistently in polling for so long? And I I think the answer is probably going to be Bush versus Kerry, frankly. Romney—there were some polls showing Romney up over Obama, um, particularly after the first debate, which Romney was perceived to have won by uh, quite a significant margin. They went back and forth. But it was close. We were talking, like, two points, three points. This is a consistent polling lead that— Trump has had over Joe Biden for a while now, yeah. and it's holding
0: for and now. Including in the swing states where it really yes. matters. Now, meanwhile, over on MSNBC, a roundtable of hosts grilled Biden challenger Dean Phillips this weekend, calling his campaign a long shot. Let's watch some of that. What is the red line for you to drop out of this mm-hmm. race? And two, sure. if you are not successful, which the numbers currently
2: say you will not be, mm-hmm. will you endorse and support and work okay. to elect Joe Biden? So so here's, here's the mission. I'm using, I'm I'm trying to build a model for Democrats to invite Americans to join us. We've lost huge swaths of this country because we stopped paying attention to them. Uh, Former President Trump is paying attention. I'm going to invite independents. I'm going to invite Republicans. I showed up at a MAGA rally just to say hi. I was greeted with decency and friendliness from 50 people waiting in the cold in New Hampshire. Many of them voted for Barack Obama. Many of them Bernie Sanders supporters. Many of them had never been to a Trump rally before. So I want to make a model for Democrats how we can win.
0: So this was a fascinating clip that I encourage people to watch in its entirety because the level of hostility that this panel had for Dean Phillips, you would have thought they were speaking to someone who had actually harmed someone in this world, <laughs> not just a random millionaire who was running for president. Now, I don't have a lot of identity of interest with Dean Phillips' actual stated policies, but the questioning that they put to him was hostile on the lines of, why are you doing this? No one knows who you are. And he's like, you're right. No one knows who I am. I have very little right. name recognition, in part because your network has granted a town hall to every Republican candidate, but not to me and, of course, not to Marianne Williamson or anybody else who's running in the Democratic field. And where they should have been humbled, I think, by him offering that, I think, really constructive pushback. They weren't. And they seem to blame him for articulating something that is very true and a problem that is not going away for Democrats, which is most voters think that Joe Biden is too old to run. People who even like Joe Biden, people who voted for Joe Biden the last time around have serious concerns about his Physical stamina and his ability to actually do the job. And Dean Phillips is basically holding himself out there as exactly like Biden, but younger. Which again, for because of all my critiques of Biden, I would share those sure. with Dean Phillips. But that is a that is a that is a legitimate that is a legitimate position to take. Particularly.
1: As a—just an electoral strategy, Biden but younger won last time. Biden was younger yes. when he won. <laughs> yes. And it, there's something just fascinating to me about the rhetoric of so many Democrats and Democratic media uh, fixtures, like Simone Sanders, like people on MSNBC and CNN, who talk about the stakes of this election in such, um, such dire terms, about how democracy itself at risk. We will have no opportunity to, to rescue the country if Donald Trump is allowed to get into office again and do what he wasn't able to do the first time. they talk about the stakes in an existential way. And yet they're not willing to consider any alternative strategy for maximizing their likely electoral success. Even though poll after poll shows Joe Biden not faring well in a matchup with Donald right. Trump. They've not been able to just even experiment, you know, I'm not saying replace him and, right. with some desperate gamble, but allow people allow an primary. actual primary, actual debates to see if someone like a Dean Phillips catches some momentum. So they, they make they make the stakes sound existential, but then they are unwilling to do anything that would that would maximize the case. Now, some I, probably on the conservative side, some people will say, "Well, they are doing, you know, go, willing to go to great lengths, but they're going to great lengths not in terms of having a better candidate, but in terms of trying to disqualify or jail Trump, and that's their actual strategy. That's the, you know, go to the go to the end of end of the line to defeat him. It's not in terms of finding a better candidate. It's going to be these, you know, legal methods."
0: I think that's right, and that is quite a gamble to take when you just have the option of having a Democratic primary. Mm. All right, stick around. We have a lot more rising for you coming up next. (music) GOP hopeful Nikki Haley made a surprise appearance on Saturday Night Live last week and was about as cringy as you might expect. The former U.N. ambassador used her time to hit back against her competition, former President Donald Trump. Let's take a look. is why won't you debate nikki haley
2: oh my god it's her the woman who was in charge of security on january 6th it's nancy pelosi for the 100th time that is not nancy pelosi it is nikki haley are you doing okay donald you might need a mental competency test you know what i did i took the test and i aced it okay perfect score they said i'm 100 percent mental And, you know, I'm confident because I'm a man. That's why a woman should never run our economy.
0: Later in the cold open, actress Ayo Adeburi attempted to gotcha Haley over her previous failure to cite slavery as a main cause of the Civil War. Let's watch how that went.
2: All right. Well, that is a new one on me. Okay, we have time for one more question, and it's actually for Ambassador Haley. Curious, what would you say was the main cause of the Civil War? Um, And do you think it starts with an S and ends with a (laughs) lavery? Yep, I probably should have said that the first time. And live from New York, it's Saturday night!
1: Though her SNL appearance was pretty awful, at least January fundraising numbers certainly were not. Per Axios, Haley managed to raise almost $17 million in the first month of 2024, with nearly $12 million coming from grassroots supporters. Haley has been touting polling data showing her as the best GOP candidate poised to beat President Joe Biden in the general election. She posted a poll from from NBC showing she has a nine-point lead over Biden versus Trump's five-point lead, commenting another day, another poll showing that America doesn't want two grumpy old men. Once again, Trump is within the margin of error, and I wiped the floor with Joe Biden. So what did you think about the SNL appearance? I'm frankly not an SFL fan. I think the last time it made me laugh was like, 20 years ago, but—and uh, and this was no different. And maybe this is the kind of thing that's going to make, I, I think, non-Republicans like her more. Um, I don't think this is doing anything to help her in her matchup versus Donald Trump, but it doesn't matter either way.
0: I mean, I also don't care about Nikki Haley. I was frustrated because I really love Io Deborah. I think she's very funny and she's very talented and very charming. And I was looking forward to her appearance. And I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to put the blame on her as the guest, um, as opposed to the writers who, you know, set up these skits. But SNL has a long tradition now of behaving as though it's speaking truth to power, and. Acting, posturing as though it's doing what comedy should do, which is to be transgressive and uh, go where maybe a normal news uh, source wouldn't go, um, and to undermine norms and the like. But while doing the exact opposite. So the the setup with Io is as though she's getting a dig-in at Nikki Haley for bungling that answer so badly about the cause of the civil war that people on the right and the left were criticizing her for it, and instead just gives Nikki Haley an opportunity to say, oh, I made a mistake, but look at me, I can poke fun at myself, I'm delightful, Mm -hmm. I'm human, I'm being humanized by SNL. And that seems to be so counterintuitive, and I I don't know if that's just—like, what were they thinking? How did they think—did they really think that they were, like, getting one in, or, like, gotching, or— uh, you know, you know, embarrassing Haley. No, no, I, it was
1: doing the opposite. It, it was, it was yeah. showing. I mean, Haley said, "Yeah, I messed up." Right. It was doing the opposite. Yeah. But the framing
0: of it, it I, was for I Haley's believe, benefit. I believe the posture, like the the way that Io delivers her lines, is, weren't you so horrible? Like, don't you get it? Like, um, like a criticism. Right. But the effect of the skit was just so the opposite that it, it is frustrating to see. this And it's not just in this context. Over and over again, SNL manufacturers consent. For some of the most establishment players in our political system, at the same time that it pretends to be countercultural, it's subversive in the way that comedy is supposed to be subversive. Yeah,
1: I, on the list of things I would call countercultural, SNL would be like very last. Um, it was a it was a campaign commercial for Nikki Haley. It was for Nikki Haley's benefit, and it probably does make her more likable to a, a lot of people, but not the sort of people she needs to win over in order to defeat Donald Trump in a primary uh, in, in the primary elections, which is never going to happen, even though if she's getting tons of money, money pouring in still from, uh, from Republican donors. Um, and she can point to—she's not wrong—to say that she does fare better against Joe Biden in a general election matchup. Poll after poll has shown us that, yeah. but Republican primary voters don't care. They don't accept that. They want Donald Trump, and so they're going to get him, barring some um, truly out-there scenario.
0: Yeah, this, this whole episode had I, me and a lot of others, I know, reflecting on the trajectory of what was described as Trump normalization back in in 2015 and 2016. And Donald Trump being invited uh, on SNL as when he was a candidate in 2015, I think, was a really interesting moment that I think foretold how the media was going to treat him. I think a kind of um, a mock disgust or kind of performative disgust with Donald Trump, coupled with a desire to take advantage of the— widespread interest, whether it's the Purian interest on the left or legitimate interest on the right, in this guy who we knew as an entertainer up until that point and as a kind of rabble-rouser and a critic of uh, Barack Obama, a truther, all of those kinds—a uh, birther truther, whatever you call it, I forget—all um, of those kinds of things, but wasn't really taken so seriously in a political realm for obvious for obvious reasons. and. In retrospect, a lot of folks look back and say, well, that was bad. That was politicizing him, legitimizing him in a way that ultimately led to him being successful as a candidate and everything that has come since. But to the extent that you believe that, it's shocking. It's really striking Mm -hmm. that no lessons were learned from that, the same appetite to commodify Politics is leading people down the exact same road with Nikki Haley, regardless of what she stands for, regardless of what she might bring for the country. This is is an ostensibly left-leaning New York audience, liberal New York audience, that at the same time that they're inviting Nikki Haley on, ostensibly as a counterpoint to Donald Trump, who is quote-unquote worse, um, they had jokes in the same—the Weekend Update about uh, uh, the, the Chicago mayor—Chicago voting to uh, endorse a ceasefire, and that saying, like, oh, well, what about a ceasefire in Chicago joke? I mean, these are these are conservative jokes. You can like them. But there, it's very interesting that the there does seem to be a centrist establishment media that dresses itself up alternately as a little bit conservative or a little bit— liberal, like, more left-leaning. But ultimately, they seem to come to the same conclusions about how to see the world that are widely out of step with how, I think, regular people who are not locked into one of these establishment organizations who are on TikTok or tweeting or whatever see the world.
1: Yeah. You know, the whole normalizing Trump discourse is, I think, so broken at this point. You can't—you can't Treat Trump so irregularly as to stop him. I think that's what they're thinking now. This whole the deep platform. Maybe it works in some circumstances. It is not working against Trump whatsoever. Yeah. Trump is more likely today to be the next uh, president of the United States than ever before, despite constant efforts to shield you from what he has to say. To treat him like he is an abnormal figure. They're, they're literally taking legal steps as if he was an abnormal figure to and all, shielding you from what he has to say. Um, uh, you know, pressuring social media company—remember, and, you know, YouTube has finally given up on this, thank God—but actually taking down um, ju- ju- speeches of his that, that aren't contextualized as that being harmful. Yeah. Um, I was reminded of this. Obviously, our show went through it. But at this conference I attended over the weekend, um, LibertyCon, uh, there was a speaker there, um, uh, Ford Fisher, who gets—we've we, played his videos on our, our show. He gets a lot of great raw video footage of protests and events and everything. Uh, he he's really does a terrific job, and we've used his videos in the past. and he. Was telling the audience about exact same thing that happened to him when he showed um, video footage of someone. It was a, it was a, a, just a protester or something saying, um, "What did he say?" Oh, he said he was covering like, uh, like you know, the, like the Westboro Baptist Church of Crazy religious protesters who had like, "God hates." Etc. Up signs, mm-hmm. and some tr- some he said some shirtless Trump person wa- uh, 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 was yelling at them and saying, "I do think the election was stolen, but the way your 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 homophobia is wrong or something." <laughs> it was just a funny <laughs> moment that he captured on video. Yeah. It, it, he got punished for that on YouTube mm-hmm. because of the statement the protester made. Mm-hmm. He didn't put any context during that. That period, it's insane.
0: Yeah, I agree. The the platforming, deplatforming stuff is is really bizarre, and so is this whatever whatever you want to call the the brand of humor on SNL. I mean, I think fundamentally the problem is they won't they don't have any real politics. They they don't stand yeah. for anything, and when you don't stand for anything, your message becomes unclear, and your comedy becomes unclear. You have to risk someone not liking you to make I in my humble opinion both a joke that lands and a political statement that feels cogent Mm -hmm. and when you don't you get whatever this amorphous lukewarm hey nikki haley is here she's a person running for president isn't that interesting she said a thing about slavery how do i feel about it how does she feel about it who knows that's not really the gist of this segment we're just saying things that happens yeah and there's a joke in there somewhere i guess let us know how you felt about it if we're being overly harsh here i suspect uh you won't think that's the case (laughs) stick around Verizon coming up Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has acknowledged developing a, quote, personal relationship with special prosecutor and former President Donald Trump's Georgia election case, Nathan Wade. Trump's co-defendant, Michael Roman, accused Willis and Wade of having romantic ties last month, per The Hill, but Willis has denied any wrongdoing, saying, quote, any personal relationship among members of the prosecution team does not amount to a disqualifying conflict of interest or otherwise harm a criminal defendant.
1: Hmm. Some of the folks over at MSNBC recently weighed in on Willis's acknowledgement of the relationship. Let's hear what they had to say.
2: I think that the notion of tainting the jury pool is a valid one. I don't think that Fani Willis stepping away from this case eliminates that because you're still talking about her office. You're still talking about her investigators and you're still talking about her indictment. And so I think that she did the right thing by saying, look, this is what it is. She can't get in front of it because, you know, what a lot of people may not realize is that In the streets of Fulton County, this was largely considered to be a public secret in terms of this this relationship. And that doesn't make it better or worse. What I'm saying is I don't know that the impact on the jury will be as significant Mm -hmm. as people are thinking is going to be. Because for the jury pool, it may not be that much of a surprise.
1: Nathan Wade has not appeared to comment on the issue since Willis acknowledged this relationship. Willis and Wade have been subpoenaed to testify next week on the allegations against them.
0: Yeah, I'm confused about the, the posture of this idea that it's going to hurt, uh, it was going to bias the jury pool. It, the allegation seems to be that it's going to uh, bias the jury pool against Trump in some way. I'm not seeing that. If anything, I, I would suspect, I would assume that the corruption and just general poor management by Fania Willis would make this seem even more like a kangaroo court to those who are inclined to believe that this is an illegitimate case against Donald Trump and hurt her. To the extent that there's a desire to recuse her and replace her in this situation, I think, I would think. I would think, that would be be very strongly supported by Democrats who want the case to be as successful as possible. But that doesn't seem to be what's, what folks are arguing right now.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. There's—the there's, there's uh, the claim is just the perception of this is going to somehow affect the way the case is perceived and covered. Again, that's not anything that bears directly on the ju- a decision that a jury has to make. Um, so it's a kind of, like, amorphous— you know, by their, the vibes are changing on this prosecution, and maybe that will somehow affect the case, which I, I guess could be. It's it's certainly yeah. not good for the case, but maybe it doesn't ultimately change anything. It, it does—you um, know, it's interesting to see confirmation now from her that this is what it appeared to be right. in terms of their romantic relationship. We also covered um, last week this new accusation uh, against her that she had fired a whistleblower, someone who came forward and said that public funds in the Fulton County D.A. office were being misspent by some—but not by Fannie Willis, by some other figure—that mm-hmm. he this grant That had to be used for um, for I think juvenile setting up programs for uh, for juveniles was being used for like splurging for buying um, uh, office supplies mm-hmm. phones and things like that, and uh, this employee came to Fannie Willis, uh, very very upset about it, and told her, and Fannie Willis seemed to acknowledge it and then subsequently was fired. Now, we don't know the other side of this. We don't know if there was some legitimacy to her being fired uh, or, frankly, if the mm-hmm. accusation which she was making was true, but uh, it, is a, it, it is it is a—it looked very suspect. And then this person has come forward and identified herself and, and shared. Um, uh, uh, audio recording recording and has said on the record that this is how it was.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I do, to the jury pool point, so one of the arguments as I understand it, is that because in defending herself, Fannie Willis accused those making the accusation against her of being racist, now you have a posture where Willis, who apparently is very popular in Fulton County, she received over 71 percent of the Democratic primary vote in 2020. This is from reporting in um, New York Magazine, uh, that it, her public, publicly calling defense teams in the highest-profile case racist could outrage a potential jury pool, and that those kind of inflammatory statements are not what you would normally expect in this kind of situation, which all of that feels fine and right to me. I can see a million reasons that both sides would want Fannie Willis— Um, and her now admitted romantic partner to be nowhere near this case, and given the low consequences for swapping them out, and given, frankly, that there seems to be some credibility to the idea that her partner is not the most qualified qualified. person to run this case. I, I just don't understand why we're still having this conversation. And why there hasn't been a hard reset.
1: So, Fannie Willis um, was elected in 2020, defeated a six-term incumbent, Paul Howard Jr., um, who was accused of some sexual uh, misconduct or harassment in the office, and uh, was actually, when she was interviewed about why she was running against him, she brought that up. Um, This is an interesting clip. Incredibly
0: juicy clip, in retrospect. Take a look. Let's play it. What I can guarantee you is with my reputation, with my community ties, I am going to be able to attract the best and the brightest minds to that office. You're sitting with someone today that actually wants to make a difference because they deserve a DA that won't have sex with his employees because they deserve a D.A. that won't put money in their own pocket when it should go to benefit children. So, of course, you know, sexually harassing someone in the workplace is not the same thing as having a consensual romantic relationship. However, what you just said was
1: sex with your employees. I don't know. He's. The guy she picked to run this case—he is, in fact, working for her in some capacity, which is why there are ethical questions. Because she picked him, she hired him. F- public funding is being directed exactly. to him, and there's accusations that he took her—he paid for trips he took her on. Um, it sounds like exactly what she just described. Yeah, the, with the kind problem. of soft
0: kickback <laughs> argument that's being made. Yeah. A- absolutely. So, you know, maybe she did not plan to have these romantic feelings when she entered the office, and you love,
1: know, love wins. The heart wants what the heart wants, Brianna. <laughs>
0: but, like, it t- yeah, at the end of the day, it happened. We're right. in this situation, and it does seem to be, like, zero upside into wanting to cling to this particular set of prosecutors when the stakes, as Democrats have laid it out for themselves, the stakes of this case in particular are so incredibly
1: just a great example of Donald Trump really bringing people together to find <laughs> to find love and romance. Happy for them. But uh, yeah, it seems like they should not be involved in this case and uh, might not be for much longer. More rising right after this.
0: Some staff members over at CNN have expressed the company's coverage of the Israel siege on Gaza amounts to journalistic malpractice. One staffer said, quote, "...the majority of news since the war began, regardless of how accurate the initial reporting, has been skewed by a systemic and institutional bias within the network toward Israel."
1: According to six CNN staffers, as well as internal memos and emails, daily news decisions are shaped by directives from the CNN headquarters in Atlanta, setting strict guidelines on coverage. Additionally, every story on the war must be greenlit by the Jerusalem Bureau. Before it's published or makes air. Now, as quoted in The Guardian, some at CNN fear that its coverage of the latest Gaza war is damaging a reputation built up by its reporting of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which led to a surge in viewers. But others say that the Ukraine war may be part of the problem because editorial standards grew lax as the network and many of its journalists identified clearly with one side, Ukraine, particularly at the beginning of the conflict. Now, one CNN journalist described a schism within the network reminiscent of the the times following 9-1, 9-11, per The Guardian.
0: Now, this comes as Belgium summoned Israel's ambassador on Friday to condemn the bombing of the Belgian development agency in Gaza. Brussels said the offices were destroyed in northern Gaza. The Belgian minister of foreign affairs wrote in a tweet, targeting civilian bu- buildings is unacceptable. Per The Times of Israel, there were reportedly no rep- employees in the building at the time of the bombing. The IDF has said it's looking into Belgium's claims. Meanwhile, Philippe Lazzarini, commissioner—general of the U.N. Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA, said he will stay in his post for as long as possible, defying Israeli demand for his resignation, following allegations that members of his Gaza staff took part in Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. For the Financial Times, Lazzarini said, Are we paying the price for having been vocal in drawing attention about the plight of the people in Gaza of this humanitarian disaster unfolding on our watch? Maybe this might have contributed to accelerate or amplify the criticism.
1: Hmm. Well, meanwhile, House Speaker Mike Johnson is set to put a $17.6 billion standalone Israel aid bill. On the floor this week, so there will be a vote on Israeli aid, uh, separate from anything else, border, Ukraine, etc. Um,
0: so I just want to be really clear about the posture of what's being argued about uh, the the Belgian building that's been bombed. Mm-hmm. The allegation is that because Belgium Belgium did not agree to withdraw its funding from UNRWA the way that the United States and nine of its allies did after the Israeli accusations that. Now, we now know four four of the 30,000 people who work at UNRWA were accused of uh, being involved on October 7th. Because Belgium did not withdraw its funding from UNRWA, it subsequently—it's arguing—had its building, its aid building, its, its civilian building in Gaza bombed by Israel. Now, that is the contention, but it's a very bold—you know, going from speculation to outright uh, contention from um, uh, people at that agency is a pretty incredible charge to make and suggest that the the tensions here are really boiling over between humanitarian aid workers and people across the international community and the impunity with which Israel seems to be getting away with what, in other contexts, would definitely be considered to be war crimes and violations of international protocol.
1: Sure. um, I—as I said last week, I certainly support um, ending the funding of UNRWA, but there should be an investigation here that they're not supposed to—they shouldn't blow up their the the Belgian bill, they shouldn't retaliate for Belgium not wanting to take that step. It seems very um,
0: and more, to and moreover, than, than the broader claim here with uh, uh, Philippe uh, Lazarini, um, Commissioner General of UNRWA, is he's now coming out and saying, well, is UNRWA being retaliated against? Right? Is the, is are these charges? being raised on the exact same day, mere hours after the ICJ opinion came down two Fridays ago, precisely because the International Court of Justice relied on so much testimony from humanitarian aid workers in Gaza. You can appreciate what other sources really are as proximate to what's been going on in Gaza uh, for the last decades and decades, Um, And that are they basically being— um, are they enacting revenge? Is Israel enacting revenge? Is the international community of the United States and its allies enacting revenge on UNRWA, the aid organization, for providing the testimony that allowed the ICJ to come to the determination that there is a plausible charge against Israel of genocide? You know, and is that is that the way the international community is operating now, that you're going to Bomb buildings and defund aid organizations on which two million of the two point three million people who live in Gaza rely on for food, as there is an impending famine where Gazans are currently eating grass uh, to survive. Um, You know, is 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 that the kind of ally we want to have, and the the kind of um, government that we want to support?
1: Yeah, I uh, I think. Anyone should be able to send aid money if they want to, but it's not the U.S. government's responsibility to use our taxpayer dollars for that purpose or for the purposes of funding Israel. As now I was happy to see uh, Representative Thomas Massey, who's probably closest to my views on this subject, on foreign policy, um, announced on Twitter uh, on X that he was going to vote against. The Israel Israeli aid, uh, he wrote. Israel has a lower debt to GDP ratio than the United States. This spending package has no offset, so it will just increase our debt by the amount of money um, spent on it. Why does a why does a wealthy country, you know, we have all these financial problems, all all sorts of policy issues? Um, why do we have to pay for a wealthy country with fewer debt problems than we have for their defense? It doesn't make any sense. So just as and we're 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 funding the we're funding the bombing, and then we're funding the humanitarian. We were until we paused funding to UNRA. We're funding the humanitarian. Uh, it's like we we blow up a bridge and then we pay to rebuild it. Why are we doing this? I think many Americans would have a lot of questions about the waste of money that goes into paying for a war and then paying for for fixing the problems created by the war. Is this making us more secure? There's no evidence it's making us safer. In fact, there's a lot of evidence it's probably making U- U.S. forces deployed all over the world for various reasons, for um, reasons that don't quite sit with our Constitution, frankly, um, coming under assault, in danger, because of what's going on. Uh, It doesn't seem like a good use of money, and I was glad to see Massey say he's going to vote against it. And that got him called an anti-Semite by John Potteritz, the uh, editorial director of Commentary, even though he has a totally consistent—Massey has a consistent opposition to this kind of aid funding to any country—it's not specific to Um, Israel—a very unfair charge.
0: Yeah, I I, I saw someone do the math, and it was something like 200-odd dollars—if you—this is not how it works, obviously, but if you were to distribute out the aid that is being allocated for Israel across the American public, it would amount to something like $200, $250 per American citizen at a time when, as I say often on this show and elsewhere, the average American can't come up with $400, 50% of Americans can't come up with $400 for a, an emergency, medical emergency, breaking your, you know, bailing your mm-hmm. loved one out of prison, whatever the emergency is. And that really puts it into scale. And when you see um, the reaction to Thomas Massey saying, "I'm not, I'm not going to vote for this." When you see someone like, uh, you know, a, a kind of esteemed columnist say, "No, of course you're a no, you're a disingenuous piece of anti-Semitic filth," it really lets you know wh- what mm-hmm. the climate of, of of pushback is and how um, stigmatized having a political position other than I unconditionally endorse Israel and unlimited aid to Israel really is in the United right. States of America. And I'm going
1: to send your money there. And I mean, you can support what they're doing. You can say that's that, that they should be doing this um, and vocally support them, but it is not the obligation—American taxpayers are not obligated to contribute their hard-earned money for this effort.
0: Yeah, and it's worth mentioning also your point about the uh, danger that troops overseas are facing precisely because of the escalation— uh, in Gaza, it is a really it is one you cannot emphasize enough. The stated, I was listening to an interview on Intercepted actually uh, this morning, and the guest was explaining how frequently when there are attacks against american troops in the middle east they are described by the attackers as attacks on israel israel and the united states of america are seen as one mm-hmm. entity and the actions of israel are blamed on the united states rightly or wrongly and vice versa and as we often talked about on the talk about on the show, show you know it is it is it is difficult to forget i don't i think don't think we should forget that in the Um, why I did it explanation for 9-11, the oppression of Palestinians was the prime justification for that terror attack. So what does that mean about the long-term safety of both our troops stationed overseas and Americans here at home?
1: Hmm. We will continue to follow developments in the Middle East and we'll have more rising right after this.
0: been rough going for RFK the independent presidential hopeful had an uncomfortable interview with comedian Dave Smith on his podcast as he was seemingly unable to answer if he had concerns over Israeli influence in American politics let's take a look
2: do you sir do you have I I don't agree with that but okay do you have concerns about um the the level of Israeli influence in our our politics here in the United States of America I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I just, I'm not, you know, I'm not a politician in political office, so I don't see much of that. So you don't think like, so, so in after uh, 9-11. Listen, I think, uh, listen, I think everybody has, um, you know, that, that, that there's so many malevolent influences on Capitol Hill.
0: And they include many nations, and they include many, you know, corporate entities. Oh, so, and I don't later on in the interview, RFK struggled to justify the difference on his foreign policy surrounding Ukraine and Israel, respectively. Let's watch that.
2: Been such a critic, and such own an own effective own. critic. You've been, you've been such an effective critic of the neoconservatives. I, I am a, a critic of the neoconservatives. Yes, I know. That's what I just said. But you know that the, these two issues are so, like, intertwined. And I know you know that because I know you know this stuff. But look, uh, well, the, wait, the report— I mean, David, again, uh, I, would, you know, I, I would vote for World War II. Right? I would not vote for any other war. The neocons vote for every war. and you're I, voting for I this war. i the opposition to the Afghan war, to the Iraq war. To Panama. Oh, okay, to fine. But Vietnam. listen. I was okay, fine. But this is all I'm Panama, saying. Vietnam, so, I, you know, all okay. the wars. Okay. But I'm just saying I don't want to live in a world where it, I think it would be bad for our country. It would be bad for the
0: world. Meanwhile, President Biden's patience with Israeli leader Bibi Netanyahu seems to be running out as some reports indicate that Biden is becoming frustrated with the Israeli head of state as the conflict in Gaza is beginning to bleed him, young voters and Arab voters alike. Twitter community notes pointed out that Deputy White House Press Secretary Andrew Bates denied the accusations and added that, quote, Biden and Netanyahu have a decades-long relationship that is respectful in public and in private. Meanwhile, third party candidate Cornell West was far more candid about Biden's connection with, about how Biden's connection with Israel made him a quote "war criminal. West added that Israel and the United States were quote intertwined in genocide as a result of their actions in Gaza.
1: Biden has been taking a walloping from the left over his Israel policy. Politico reported an unnamed House Democrat as saying, quote, "The base is really ticked off and it's not just the leftists. I have never seen such a depth of anguish as I've seen over this Gaza issue. Bibi is toxic among among many Democratic voters, and Biden must distance himself from him yesterday.
0: Yeah, that seems to be... Self-evidently true. We've been talking about polls showing the overwhelming majority of Democratic voters support a ceasefire. The, over, the majority of all voters also support a ceasefire. And yet, you see these two presidential candidates, Joe Biden on the one hand, and RFK Jr. on the other hand, seeming completely unwilling to distance themselves from uh, Netanyahu's policies, no matter how much it hurts them electorally. With Biden, you're seeing a fleet of articles come out saying there's discord behind the scenes. He's trying to pressure him behind the scenes. But some critics of that say, well, this is just a media effort to give him cover for what is ultimately a continued support of him in every way that matters. bombs The bombs that are being dropped are bombs that are coming from America. The funding is coming from America. Netanyahu could not continue this. Um, uh, siege without America's both real financial, military, and diplomatic support. So what is the effect of what's going on in the media, these articles saying, well, Biden is secretly upset, is to give a kind of a pretext for those who are concerned with these behaviors and say, well, Biden's doing the best he can do. Biden's doing the best he can do, even though he evidently, self-evidently is not. And on the other hand, RFK Jr. is such a confusing entity because so much of his value in the political discourse right now as being someone who's been willing to go against establishment norms when it comes to whether it's COVID or vaccines or um, uh, the Ukraine war. But this instance is one where he's very clearly unwilling to depart from the establishment in any way, even when asked a series of, I think, really fair and pointed questions um, by Dave Smith here. Yeah. And you got that seven-second pause that was heard all around the Internet this weekend. People couldn't believe it, as you seemed to be sitting there considering this issue for perhaps the first time.
1: So I know Dave Smith decently well. He's a comedian and a, a libertarian commenter. He's actually been very involved in the Libertarian Party. Um, him and his—he helped organize—his supporters actually kind of took over the Libertarian Party since the uh, previous election. He has been mentioned as a possible Libertarian Party presidential mm-hmm. candidate, frankly, and there was some speculation that he would run. I think he has tamped down on that speculation and has no intention of running. But, uh, you know, we've talked a a lot. There's been a lot of discussions about whether RFK Jr. could ultimately be the Libertarian Party candidate, that those discussions were happening several months ago when uh, Angela McArdle, who we've interviewed on the show, the head of the Libertarian Party, um, seems somewhat uh, very supportive of RFK Jr. Now, he has taken criticism from the Libertarian Party account itself on social media for his Israel stance. And there you see from Dave Smith, um, again, who is someone who is very much representative of where Libertarian Party thinking is these days, very uncomfortable with what RFK Jr. has to say about Israel, and RFK, you know, was was trying to differentiate himself from neocons, saying, "Well, they support every war other than World War II. I wouldn't have supported any of our wars." And RFK says, "Well, you're you're supporting funding this war again." I think it would be different, and and I think it would be acceptably libertarian to say that. Um, what—that Israel needs—was attacked by a terrorist group and needs to defeat Hamas and is going to take actions to do that. And maybe I uh, criticize or have a lot of problems with some of the actions they're taking, but they're going to do that, etc. But the duty of the American taxpayers to fund that is pretty—I think pretty— Important to libertarians to say that we and, and to many conservatives and to many <laughs> many on the left as well, there's some commonality here that we we do not want our dollars sent overseas for this purpose and we object to it and we object to our government doing it on our behalf and um, and so on this issue he is, he is very out of step with um, I think all sorts of independent-minded people who would be otherwise willing to support right. him
0: and, and I take your point about the funding aspect of it to be clear but to be clear. So many people, not just on the left, but generally speaking, see this as an unjust war from on the behalf of Israel because of the continued and ongoing occupation. And when you hear Kennedy's explanation, when you listen to the full interview, or at least the extended what eight-minute clip that was going around on on mute on, on Twitter, there is a, an ideological argument he's making for the legitimacy of a continued occupation in the kind of um intensity of the siege that has now claimed coming up on—or if it hasn't exceeded—30,000 lives in Gaza. And he makes arguments that are facially, historically wrong um, about uh, 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 Palestinians, uh, the PLL, refusing to acknowledge uh, Israel as a state with a right to exist. Arafat acknowledged that back in 1967. There's a bit of a, a pivot that he makes that says, oh, well, acknowledge it as a, a Jewish state with a right to exist, which very much feels like a goalpost moving. When asked pointedly about whether or not he's considered this question of whether or not um, uh, APAC uh, israel lobbies have too much influence in American politics, he says, well, I'm not a politician in elected office, so I'm not really privy to that, as though all of us in the media realm aren't covering stories about the influence. Uh, that Israel has—we just did a story today about CNN uh, journalists complaining that all of their stories are routed through Jerusalem or these uh, reviewers in Atlanta that skew the bias disproportionately toward um, Israel. The idea that someone who wants to be president of the United States of America—he hasn't even considered this issue—as someone who has— you know, who ha- is running for office and certainly, I'm sure, I don't know exactly where he's earned money from, um, but certainly is in a realm where APAC LA- money flows in, in the course of these elections, seeing news stories about how they committed to $100 million to All defeat right. pro-Palestine candidates. So, and, and this is the main point I want to make about this, his his father's Justice Department was in the process of trying to order the American Zionist Council, the, like a proto-APAC group, to register as a foreign agent, which, by the way, APAC does not have to do in contrast to so many other foreign—every other foreign lobbyist group in America. So, for him to say, I don't know, I just haven't considered that because I've never been in elected office, really does feel like a cop-out.
1: Yeah. I mean, he could have just said, look, there. it is true there are a lot of different levels of influence going on in Washington. There are a lot of interest groups spending a lot of money to lobby po- politicians for all sorts of causes. Um, related to foreign policy and foreign governments and also to domestic industries and so on and so forth. And it's kind of a bit gross across the board. If he didn't want to specifically um, call out this one aspect of lobbying, that's fine by me, but he should say, you know, I, I'm what, what I would like to hear him say is, I'm running for president in order to put the American people first, to be solely focused on their needs and what they want. And they have there, there is a lot of dissatisfaction about the automatic level of support for not just Israel, for Ukraine, and for everywhere else being prioritized. And for what? What is the strategic actual benefit for the U.S.? You say, you know, he says it's there. It's important for for us for there to be in Israel. Um, I, I'm not disputing that, but we are we are now having our troops being attacked all over the globe. Uh, we had three people die uh, because of, of uh, an yes. Iranian-funded militia group. And the American people are deeply dissatisfied. So let's rethink this.
0: Yeah. And just to be clear, as of last week, the, the latest reporting was that our own uh, State Department spokespeople confirmed that they didn't have any actual evidence of the direct Iranian ties to it. Uh, to to the well, they have the no. That, they, they don't think
1: Iran told this group
0: to do this. It wasn't directed, right? Right. So it's Iranian funded in the way that everything Israel does, even the claims of genocide that it might be um, permanent, you know, more to, conclusively charged with at the ICJ, are American funded. Well, yeah, but everyone does say that, in fact. Sure. So. Um, yeah. One other point I'd make about this is that, as we covered on the show. He was invited um, uh, by—RFK Jr. was invited by Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone, who I think is one of the most um, informed with an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of the region and and some of the—I don't want to characterize them as talking points, but— common refrains that uh, RFK Jr. and others make in this realm and, and wanted to debate him, and he's never, not yet followed up on that. But it was willing to go on uh, Dave Smith's show, despite having a smaller audience, frankly, um, than uh, the gray zone has. and. And seeing the way that this interview went, I do think it is perhaps a demonstration of why there is a reluctance to go toe-to-toe with someone like Max Blumenthal, but I really do think that those kind of conversations are very useful, very fruitful, and I think that uh, Dave Smith did a really good job here.
1: More Rising right after this.
0: ABC's George Stephanopoulos cut off or ended a conversation abruptly with Ohio Senator J.D. Vance live on air after he suggested former President Donald Trump could defy the Supreme Court.
1: The Constitution says that the Supreme Court can make rulings, but if the Supreme Court — and look, I hope that they would not do this — but if the Supreme Court said the president of the United States can't fire a general. That would be an illegitimate ruling, and the president has to have Article II prerogative under the Constitution to actually run the military as he sees fit. This is just basic constitutional legitimacy. You're talking about a hypothetical where the Supreme Court tries to run the military. I don't think that's going to happen, George. But, of course, if it did, the president would have to respond to it. There are multiple examples throughout American history of the president doing just that.
2: You didn't say military in your answer, and you've made it very clear. You believe the president can defy the Supreme Court. Senator, thanks for your time this morning.
1: No, 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 George. Roundtable's up
2: next. We'll be right
1: back. The former president recently weighed in on Joe Biden's administration, saying we could be headed toward World War III.
2: I think this. um, Our country's a mess. Our borders are open and insecure. You know, nine months is a long time. You have a very good chance in that period of time of having World War III because we have somebody that is not doing his job properly. He's not respected. He's laughed at all over the world. He's not doing a good job.
1: He also teased potential vice presidential candidates if, if he were to win the 2024 presidential election.
2: Who is your running mate? Well, I have a lot of good people. We have a lot of really good people. So you haven't decided who it is? I have a lot of good ideas, but I haven't. And there's no if, reason so to do So you haven't told that person, you're my person. I, I speak to everybody. I speak to everybody. You know, I called Tim Scott, this so because a lot of people like Tim Scott, I called him and I said, you're a much better candidate that, for me than you are for yourself. When I watched him, he was fine, he was good, but he was very low-key, et etc. Et I watched him in the last week defending me and sticking up for me and fighting for me. I said, man, I said, you're a much better person for me than you are for yourself, because for himself.
0: Trump also emphasized the importance in protecting Israel. The oil. Would you still send aid to Israel right now?
2: Look, we've always got to protect Israel, in my opinion. They've been, you know, they're they're amazing people. What they've done is it's an amazing thing. And they've been loyal to us.
1: Hmm.
0: Right. So a couple of things there. I guess we should start uh, with the J.D. Vance up top. Trump is being charged with by Democrats, not Respecting democracy and Democrats are arguing that the stakes of this election are protecting our most basic institutions. I do think when you have supporters, when you have members in your party out there saying things like the President of the United States doesn't have to respect Supreme Court judgments, it doesn't help your argument that you respect the basic kind of status quo of American democracy. That's not a substantive judgment on what anybody means, but. People like J.D. Vance coming out time and time again with these kind of statements is simply not helping the case that Trump is trying to make, which is that, hey, you can trust me with the reins again.
1: Well, look, I wish all members of Congress in both parties would loudly articulate that the president uh, is limited in his authority and should not be able to do whatever he wants and should not defy the Supreme Court. Um, I think it was a little— You know, J.D. Vance brought up a a theoretical example of the Supreme Court doing something really beyond the pale and unconscionable, whereby people would want the president to actually ignore him. That's not really what's being discussed here. But he brought up a theoretical example, and then, I don't know, it felt like George Stephanopoulos then put— A sentence in his mouth and immediately rapped to stop him from responding, which was not fair.
0: Well, for context, they were talking about an interview that Vance had done back in 2021. This is reporting um, from Newsweek, where Vance had urged Trump to fire every civil servant in the administration and replace them during a second term, um, while seemingly suggesting he ignore any Supreme Court ruling that ordered him to stop. So when um, Stephanopoulos says, well, you didn't, you know, we weren't talking about um, the Supreme Court overreaching into the president's authority over the military. That wasn't the example we were talking about. That's what he's referencing. That he's now trying to narrow the argument to make it seem more plausible and less outrageous than a clear um, uh, rejection of the separation of powers, which I think is a fair read of the statements that he made on that podcast back in 2021. Now, JD Vance can change his mind, but again, you have. When you have folks in your cohort saying things like, hey, when you get a second term, fire everybody, do whatever you want, ignore the Supreme Court, that's where people are getting the impression that Trump doesn't respect democracy. When when Trump says, I'm going to be a dictator on day one and keeps saying it over and over again, even when his ostensible allies on Fox News, like Sean Hannity, try to push him into a more— Um, you know, easily digestible answer, like a tolerable answer. That is where you get this narrative forming. So you have to place some of the blame, in my view, on Donald Trump and his surrogates' own behaviors here.
1: Well, Trump and Vance and other Republicans should commit to respecting Supreme Court decisions uh, for not—we do not want to delegitimize the Supreme Court as an institution on the conservative side. Um, However, civil service reform uh, admitted— eliminating some of the bloat in the administrative state, a, a, an administrative state that many conservative voters feel has been weaponized against them, it is a is a goal, is something Trump is running on. And I don't—it's not—that itself is not some kind of violation of the democratic processes. That is a goal, is to reduce the number of government employees, federal employees. Um, that is what Trump is running on. If he wins, he will try to do that. That will be—that will be democracy. That's the platform. And then they're going to implement it. Of course, it should be implemented consistent with the law. It should not—if if the Supreme Court halts some aspect of it as as illegal or unconstitutional. That should be respected. They should commit to respecting it. But the their 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 pitch to voters is is that they are going to and I hope they succeed. And I don't think they did a good enough job of it last time in uh, in winding down this the administrative state.
0: Now on the Trump interview, this is perhaps one of the few times a reporter has gotten him in a one on one and been able to press him at all on how he would handle Israel Gaza any differently than Biden, if at all. And this answer that quote, we've always got to protect Israel, in my opinion, doesn't seem to suggest there'd be much in the way of difference, at least when it comes to funding and diplomatic cover.
1: Yes. And that should not actually be surprising because With foreign policy, we learned that no matter what the voters want, and even if we have a change in direction in the country in terms of what party's in charge, and no matter how much voters indicate that they want a less hawkish foreign policy and that they want American political figures to concentrate on problems at home, uh, there's a tremendous continuity in American foreign policy, always in favor of more intervention and more money being sent overseas. Um, All that said, I did—you know, that was a quick answer. That was, like, 13 seconds. She asked— would you support—I think she her, her wording was more aid to Israel. Remember, the, the, they're going to vote on a standalone additional bill to fund Israel, beyond the support we're already giving mm-hmm. them. And Trump did not specifically say he supported—he might very well support that. But he said— he had a vaguer statement that we must always defend Israel, support Israel, good things about them. So maybe that means the baseline level of funding they're already getting is sufficient. Maybe that means even more funding is necessary. I didn't quite hear him answer that specifically. I wish he would be a little bit more specific about how his foreign policy would be exactly the same or depart significantly from Joe Biden. I
0: mean, the fact is that he benefits from ambiguity, and I I think he understands that. So any non-answers, I think, fall in the column of the implication is, um, you know, that it's, it's got to be his mark against Donald Trump. Uh, being a fence-sitter when you're in a highly-charged political environment, where people are looking to the president—and the presidential election is one of the few opportunities they have to really weigh in directly on America's foreign policy—to give a wishy-washy answer, I think it's, it's got to be a demerit. People should be able to place a vote that is informed. And they fundamentally cannot do that if the candidate themselves won't be honest about what their position is. And say what you want to say, there's no—there's no ambiguity about where R.F.K. Jr. stands on Israel. There's no ambiguity about where Biden stands on Israel, even though there are all these articles coming out now that suggest that he is uncomfortable with Bibi Netanyahu. His actual policy priorities—his funding priorities haven't changed in the least. Um, And nor has has the kind of diplomatic cover that's been given um, to Israel by the U.N. So Donald Trump, his day has got to be coming, and if he's only sitting down for interviews with more conservative hosts in this kind of format, then it really is incumbent on them to deliver on what their audiences want to know. And their audiences are very much skeptical of continued aid.
1: Yeah. So he also addressed some VP speculation in that clip, Um, specifically mentioning Tim Scott, saying that Tim Scott has been a very powerful surrogate when speaking in Trump's defense. Uh, I, I... I'm not sure if we played it in that clip. I can't recall, but he also did mention Christie Nome. Mm. Uh, these are, you know, two of the three people that I think are most, in fact, likely to be his VP picks. Um, yeah, I'd be, if I was a gambling man, I'd be betting on Tim Scott right now. Maybe Christie Nome.
0: Uh, my hot take is that the way he phrased that, "Hey Tim Scott, he's he works better for me than he did for himself." He had that kind of that Trump has this kind of honest. Uh, way like you can see his underlying emotions coming out. Where he's like, hey I'm kind of surprised this guy's going all out for me because I don't know that I would this is my read I'm reading into this obviously, but what I take from that is he's like like shocked and a little confused by how hard Tim Scott is advocating for him for him because he doesn't see himself reciprocating in any <laughs> world where the situation were reversed and that thing that might also suggest that he doesn't feel like he mm. owes Tim Scott anything in return, despite like acknowledging, like, oh, well, this guy's doing anything he wants. I, I want. He's working really hard for me. Gosh, mm. I wonder why. Uh, you know,
1: mm-hmm. I, I think that's, he, uh, that's my guess. Uh, I bet. I think he's picking Scott. I'm feeling Scott right now. All right. But we'll cool. see. We'll have plenty of time to speculate yeah. wildly. More rising right after this. here in Washington, D.C., there are mounting concerns over a violent crime wave that have leaders in the city scrambling to answer to their angry constituents. Tensions surrounding crime in the city reached an uncomfortable new high after Mike Gill, a former Trump administration official, uh, died last week after being shot during a carjacking spree on K Street. K Street, it should be noted, is normally a relatively safe part of town where D.C.'s many lobbyists work. Now, here's a local report on this killing.
0: But first, some breaking news tonight, Mike Gill has died after being shot during a deadly carjacking spree in the district. Gill was a member of former President Donald Trump's administration and served on the D.C. Board of Elections. Police say Gill was shot on K Street Northwest Monday night when the suspect got into Gill's car and opened fire. Police say the suspect later went on to shoot and kill another man that night before being shot by police in Prince George's County, Maryland. Gill leaves behind a wife and three children. Hmm. D.C. Councilwoman Brooke Pinto introduced a piece of omnibus legislation designed to curb the violence in the district to be voted on tomorrow. Let's take a look. Today, I am sharing that I am moving Secure D.C., my omnibus legislation, which combines several bills and hundreds of provisions as one big package for a vote out of the Judiciary Committee next week. My secure D.C. omnibus includes the strongest and most effective solutions that the Judiciary Committee considered this fall to address the emergent public safety crisis in the district. The law's introduction comes as efforts to recall D.C. Councilman Charles Allen over his local criminal justice policies pick up steam. As Bloomberg reports, lobbyists and Capitol Hill insiders are hopping on board as volunteers in the effort to oust Allen, including vast swaths of Democrats who worked with former President Obama. So it does seem like there's a bipartisan interest in doing something about this, and unsurprisingly so, given that the carjacking rates in D.C. have doubled. Over the last year,
1: yeah, and the number of homicides last year uh, was way, way up. So m- throughout most of the country, uh, violent crime increased during the pandemic, and and ha- but has come down mm-hmm. precipitously. Um, it's falling virtually everywhere. It is not falling in DC. It is up. It has continued. I'm, I'm looking at this chart uh, from Semaphore showing what is this? Two hundred. This is like 280 or so homicides last year versus the year before that was uh, was I think was 200. And it's uh, the chart is. It's up for D.C. For everywhere else, it goes up and comes down. Um, I was recently trying to do some digging to understand what is D.C. doing wrong, what is unique to D.C. that, like, this is not true of Philadelphia or New York or San Francisco. What is going on in D.C.? Um, Part of it is our jurisdictional issues, that we're a city that is—there are areas of the city, swaths of the city. There are disputes between who's supposed to be in charge of that area, the city or the federal government. Um, our crime is handled by a U.S. by the U.S. Attorney's Office. In in uh, virtually everywhere else in the country, the person in charge of bringing pro- prosecuting criminals is someone who is either elected by the people or is appointed by someone who is elected by the people of that of that city of that municipality. Our our U.S. Attorney is appointed by President Biden, who is you know, elected by the people of the nation, but it's not a direct kind of mm-hmm. um, accountability. And that makes a difference. There's also a lot else that's gone wrong. Apparently, our crime lab, DC's crime lab, was decertified over—it it had a lot of problems. Mm. So they're not—this they, is this happened a number of years ago. So evidence, forensics, has to be outsourced to a crime lab elsewhere, which creates a massive backlog. It seems like that was the right decision to do it, because it had a lot of problems, but that's also uh, slowing down um, the, the system. Um, Um, Look, there's tremendous frustration. The mayor's very frustrated. The mayor thinks prosecutors need to bring more prosecutions. Prosecutors say we need more, you know, more direct—we need the laws to be changed and updated um, because judges are going to throw out our cases uh, when we bring them. So there's a lot of um, blaming other groups. But it is a huge problem because, as we've noted, crime, (laughs) crime very much up here.
0: Yeah, I, I'm looking at this. I mean, this is bill. right outside.
1: We, we're on K Street. This is right outside. I was at my other office at Dupont Circle. There was a, a fatal um, uh, a murder, um, broad daylight, four o'clock. Um, uh, uh, I, I live in an area of the city where there's. I can. I can see um, cars smashed the next morning, broken glass everywhere. It's. Uh, Anyway, didn't mean to cut you off. It's, no, it is
0: I, have, I, I, No, I haven't um, witnessed that uh, where I live, but I'm sorry that you're experiencing that. I'm looking at this uh, omnibus crime bill, um, and I'm not, I'm really, I'm just struggling to understand what people think are, is driving this and how these, these changes, these legal changes, would manifest in any differences. Um, there is an aspect of it that, uh, is, transpa- uh, is about police oversight and re- restores tr- transparency um, to the police department. I'm not sure what relationship that has mm-hmm. with these carjackings. There's a part that uh, would increase penalties for gun possession, which I, might make some sense, but I think would run counter to the politics of some of the people who are so as as you know primarily concerned about the rise in violence, who talk about it a lot. Um, you know, is the more conservative audience that makes a lot of political hay out of rising violence in Blue City, is going to also support the idea of increasing gun penalty, uh, penalties for gun um, possession, uh, expanding yeah. pretrial detention for youths, um, so holding juvenile offenders in secure detention facilities. As opposed to releasing them, it seems like there is a capacity issue there, not um, an issue of like being overly generous with bill reform and the like. Um, and the question, the humanitarian, you know, the, I'm sorry, the humanitarian question of whether or not we want to be in a position of keeping large numbers of minors in jail sure. for extended periods of time before they've been charged with a crime is a real issue. Um, so.
1: I'm looking. Again. I asked a friend for some of these statistics, and yeah. it was very helpful. It says in 2022, this U.S. attorney office declined to prosecute in 67% of arrests, which is the highest rate in any city in the country.
0: For carjackings?
1: Uh, for any for any arrest for any reason.
0: 67%. Right, but it's important to know if those were marijuana, you know, sure. uh, drug sure. possession cases. This is for adults.
1: This is not for juveniles. This is for, only for adults.
0: Well, so that also is yeah. like different, completely different yeah. categories of people. So what I want to know, if we're talking about carjackings, is what percentage of people reoffended because after they were let go from having been charged previously with carjacking or some similar sort of violent crime. That's the only relevant statistic here. And as I'm combing through, like I was trying to find out what it is that is driving this recall uh, effort against uh, Charles Allen, who we described in the read. And again, he's hosting a, um, a town hall tomorrow about the rise in carjackings. I went through his record. He has been elected and reelected. He seems to be popular. It's just not clear to me what it is that he's uh, accused of doing wrong or what he should have been doing differently. And I do think that in moments like this, where there's obvious tragedies, this you know this guy left three children behind, um, might kill you know this is a tragedy, and people are looking for resolutions are, are kind of, I think, lashing out in various directions to try to do something. But it's just not clear to me that, that people have a real grasp on what is driving this kind of discrete and unique Escalation of a particular kind of crime in D.C., and I don't know how you start to try to reform it until you have some better understanding of what's going on here. In the in the Mike Hill uh, shooting case, the Washington Post reported that this person—he's not just some average carjacker. He was going on a he was on a killing
1: spree. He killed someone else. And too.
0: they they reported that he was believed to be go- undergoing a psychi- psychiatric crisis at the time of the event. Yeah. Now, does that is that typical of most carjackers? I don't think so. And should this this tragedy then be used as a example of how we should design policy to prevent this sort of thing from happening? This might be a different sort of thing from the typical sort of thing that happens, even though superficially carjackings are involved. I, I, sure. I just don't know.
1: Sure. Um, but we need— <laughs> Whatever it's going to take, I, I think there's a broad uh, agreement among, I mean, everyone I talk to in the city these days is very worried about crime because uh, it's. We can see it; it's happening, and the statistics do bear it out um, that people the carjackings need to be dealt with. Uh, yes, maybe this is a different kind of um, uh, problem. But Henry, a uh, congressman, Henry Cuellar, Texas Democrat, was uh, was carjacked while he was in his car. He was made to get out at. Um, I don't think it was. I don't quite remember if it was at gunpoint or at knife point. Um, That happened just a few weeks ago. So anyway, it is a problem. We will continue to follow it. More Rising right after this.
0: From Tucker to Moscow with love. Tucker Carlson is in the Russian capital today to interview Russian President Vladimir Putin, much to the chagrin of many in the establishment. A frequent Trump and Russia critic Adam Kinzinger took to X, saying simply that Carlson was a traitor for going to Moscow. Business magnate Bill Browder added... I wish people would stop referring to Tucker Carlson as a journalist. A journalist is someone who is objective. Tucker Carlson has an agenda and brazenly lies to support that agenda. His lies cost Fox News $787 billion. His work in Moscow for Putin will cost the world far more than that, but not
1: But not everyone was so anti-Tucker. Presidential hopeful RFK Jr. posted that the legacy media is in shambles because we've caught on to their lies and propaganda. Tucker Carlson has every right to interview Putin. We need more transparency instead of less. It used to be understood. Journalists would interview world leaders, even those with whom we were at war, while beleaguered pundit Russell Brand posted a poll on his uh, ex—on X asking who the real traitor was, Joe Biden, for continuing to fund the war. Ukraine, or Tucker for interviewing Vladimir Putin. Unsurprisingly, Biden seemed to be in the lead at the time of this recording. So this is uh, remarkable. And the number of people screaming traitor—Tucker is a traitor—on social media right now is is, is significant for—we haven't even seen the interview yet—for going to Russia to interview Vladimir Putin, something journalists from mainstream uh, outlets from NBC, and ABC, and MSNBC, and Fox, and everywhere else have done this periodically. Inter- you know, we could go down the list of people who've been interviewed, the Gaddafis, and Husseins, Putin. And, and Putin himself. Putin's
0: been interviewed you know. on uh, NBC and CNN. Yes. It's-
1: so it, it's common practice yeah. for journalists to do this very thing. Now, once the interview is available, if people have criticisms of it, if people think it's overly friendly to Putin. Um, in the way that some of Tucker's other interviews have been, absolutely fine to criticize it. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying that Tucker is a traitor, that he should not be, like, allowed back into the country. I saw that sentiment. Because he's doing exactly what journalists do.
0: Now, I think it is fair to point out, as you just alluded to, that Tucker Carlson has done a number of very softball interviews as of late that, frankly, I don't think are to the benefit of his audience, who you we know, were talking about in an earlier segment how few people have had an opportunity to ask Donald Trump what he actually would do differently than Joe Biden on Israel, for example. Um, and if the failure of he and others in that position to ask those kind of hard questions, I think, is really deserving of criticism. And the if people want to draw an implication or predict that— Tucker is unlikely to be especially hard on Putin, I think that is a is a fair prediction, especially since, you know, I, I, he is not doing this interview in the United States. He's not doing it in the context of a, um, uh, of a, of a news organization. He has flown to uh, Russia. There have been, obviously, instances recently of American journalists who have been probing in areas that were— not appreciated by the Russian government and are currently in jail. So, does that also change the tenor of what this conversation is going to be like? I, I don't know. I think there's, there's a legitimate sure. question about
1: he should ask Vladimir Putin about the integrity about of the interview. The Wall Street Journal reporter right. Evan Gershkowitz, who's exactly. being held um, under uh, absolutely under BS, and should be released. It's a blow to journalistic freedom, and I hope he asks about that. I hope. Uh, he asks about the Ukraine war and how it can be de-escalated and, and brought to an end. Um, but I need to wait for the interview to judge it. And they're saying that the act of doing this is treason.
0: Sure. And I, I wouldn't say the act of doing it is treason, but I do think it's—I it's, it's I don't, I don't think it's as outrageous to say if Tucker Carlson's track record—recent track record is any indication this is going to be another softball interview. And then to ask the question, what is the purpose of doing it? I mean, people have been resurfacing clips of him. Uh, on Fox saying, you know, why should I support um, Ukraine, which is I think a, f- a fairer argument than I-, I actually, why shouldn't I support Putin because I do and When you get into that kind of a situation I don't think it's wrong to say that someone has an agenda. Many people have an agenda I very much have a political agenda. I'm a progressive. I entered into politics. Zelensky because, has
1: a political agenda right. when he's interviewed by by Journalists over and over again. He has easy. We have easy access to him right. I would like to hear from but the critique
0: Putin. then isn't you have an agenda the critique is I disagree very yeah. much with your agenda And here's why and here's why I think it's inappropriate to be leveraging your platform to give voice to right. an agenda that I don't disagree with and that's a substantive argument that people can right. make but I agree that a much of this is just the fact of interviewing someone who I disagree with is a problem. And, and
1: Frankly, it could be useful, even if it is a softball interview, even if it is coming from the perspective of someone who is more uh, friendly to the Russian government than I am or than a lot of people are. The interview could still have merit. I mean, Putin could reveal something or say something that uh, that makes news. He, you know, he's not someone who talks to Western journalists, very odd journalists of any stretch of the imagination. He lives in an authoritarian country where he can um, uh, where he can keep some control over uh, over the direction of the narrative. I, I think it could. It's absolutely worth doing, and crazy to me to see people throw around the T word.
0: I, I've had this debate um, with Nathan Robinson, a founder of Current Affairs Magazine, and we've come on different sides of this and different angles over the years about the platforming debate. Yeah. Um And I I do agree with him. He feels very strong that you should be willing to take people on. He's very famously um, reviewed, actually read and engaged with the books written by any number of very high-profile figures on the right and been um, willing to engage them in person to the extent that they're willing to engage him back. Uh, And one thing that he says is if you're going to do it, You have to be prepared, and you have to be prepared to win whatever that means for you, to be informed, to be able to respond to the points that you can very easily anticipate are going to be made. And that if you are not prepared, I think that's the only case in which you might not want to do it, especially if you could be used as a a useful idiot. I'm sorry for a much broader political agenda that could be destructive on a much bigger basis than— is Jordan Peterson cool or not? Um, and so I do. I don't. I don't. I don't think it would be irresponsible for Tucker Carlson to go into it and and not be prepared to get out of it what he wants to get out of it and what would be journalistically useful to get out of it as opposed to taking advantage of a obviously interesting interview subject mm-hmm. and get exploited in ways that he might not be able to anticipate. So that's the only thing I would also say is that I hope he. Is going into it clear-eyed about the fact that everyone has an agenda and that some of those agendas don't align with his own and Don't align with the interests of most Americans even potentially And that he needs to be very prepared and not just be doing this for clickbait and the purposes of selling his own show
1: Right and Tucker does because he you know He interviews and releases on X now he can do he can do hours worth of it as much for Vladimir Putin wants to sit down for it's uh, in some ways better than better than those Uh, Cable news interviews with world leaders that you just get you get short snippets of their thoughts And then some like vast summary of what they allegedly said That's not actually shown in the in the video because it's it's made for TV This is made for a social media platform where we could theoretically be hearing from Vladimir Putin for for like three hours As some of his interviews have gone in the past I think that's very fascinating and we will likely be watching some of it and reacting Reacting to to it it when it is available More rising right after this Brianna, do you have an absolutely favorite political news show that you can't miss other than Rising? I
0: was going to say Rising, of course.
1: Well, unfortunately, (laughs) Joe Biden is not a loyal viewer of Rising, as far as I can tell. The show that he loves and can't miss is MSNBC's Morning Joe. According to Axios, when White House aides appear on MSNBC's Morning Joe, they're often booked between 7 and 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time so that they can reach one crucial and loyal viewer, President Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the outlet also claimed that Joe Scarborough, a former GOP congressman who turned into a Trump critic, is often called by the president to hear his opinion on various issues. Biden pays particular attention to and has consulted with Morning Joe regulars such as longtime reporter Mike Barnacle, foreign policy expert Richard Haas, and historian John Meacham. Axios also reported that VP Kamala Harris hosted a private dinner for Scarborough and his Morning Joe co host wife, Mike uh, Mika Brzezinski. Walter Kern and Greg Gutfeld had a field day with this news. Let's take a listen over at Fox News. So we find out that Morning Joe is programming Naptime Joe every day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this used
2: to happen with the days of our lives and my grandma. Um, <laughs> Like we knew if some wife cheated on her husband at dinner, she'd be talking about adultery is terrible. Um, (laughs) And and, and so because he's being programmed, his aides are now being forced to watch the show Mm -hmm. so they can anticipate what he's going to be concerned about during the day. Yeah. So I, I mean, what a crazy situation in which, you know, whoever is putting Joe, uh, uh, you know, Morning Joe's words in his ears is actually whispering into the president's mind. Mm-hmm. So that's the most powerful person in America, some producer at MSNBC. Right, that's frightening.
1: I found this interesting because of all of the news coverage of Trump's. Uh, media consumption habits and how that was often used as an indictment of him—that he was cable news obsessed, that he just Fox News specifically. Um, remember all the all the idea—he oh, he never reads, he doesn't read books. It's so. I do, damning. but
0: more specifically, the argument that was being made was that Fox News had an, an, an undue influence over Donald Trump, which I think makes it somewhat hypocritical for the folks here at Fox to be saying how untoward it is for Joe Biden to be in the same situation. I, I would agree with both. Both, but I'm not sitting at one of the news <laughs> news organizations that used to, um, you know, brag and love having that kind of influence. Now criticizing it when the other side is in that seat. But I do think it's a it, it's even worse in some respects for Joe Biden because Joe Scarborough is a Republican. Like it's insane. Like there isn't some liberal sitting on Fox I mean, News a Liz that Cheney Donald Cheney Trump Republican. is. It doesn't matter. It's a Republican. And the fact that people even make those kind of excuses— —oh, a a never-Trump Republican. OK. If the Democratic Party wants to say they're a never-Trump—they're just never-Trump Republicans, that's fine. But don't be mad when millions of people say, I'm not a Democrat, because I'm not just a never-Trump Republican. I stand for things. I affirmatively wanted to support a party that said it was going to stick its neck out and fight for labor, working people. Basic human rights. Like, that's what the Democratic Party is supposed to be. And I know that sounds laughable, because it hasn't been that in very many years. But the Democratic can't turn around and then try to voter blame and voter bash when people who care about a genocide in Gaza or who care that they don't, can't afford health care in the richest country in the world where we're sending billions of dollars to Israel want a different kind of option. Um, and so, yes, I think you're completely right. This was exactly the same kind of narrative that liberals relished when it was the shoe was on the other foot. And furthermore, with this Axios reporting, there's some other interesting stuff. Apparently, Kamala Harris also watches Morning Joe, but she also watches The Five. Apparently, she. This is from um, uh, Alex Thompson at Axios. She tunes into Fox News, occasionally watches The Five. Some aides have felt that Fox News' relentlessly negative coverage, first casting her as Biden's all-powerful puppeteer, then later portraying her as incompetent, can drive Harris to distraction. Quote, it got in her head and caused high anxiety because they were constantly hammering her, end quote, one former Harris aide told Axios.
1: It's kind of incredible to me that Kamala Harris would have no idea that she's being made fun of a lot all over the place if she wasn't watching. Like, The Five is hardly the only Kamala Harris critical um, television program out there in the world. Doesn't she understand that that is the perception of her? Well,
0: I don't, I don't think that the implication here is that she thinks it's limited at Five. But oh. I think that if you wanted to get a good sense of the nature of the critiques against you, yeah. I think that she's looking in the right place. I mean, The, the Five question is, is one of the if,
1: highest rated news yeah. programs on all of television. Yeah,
0: so the question is whether or not it's particularly uh, constructive right. or helpful for her mental health to be watching, especially since I do think a lot of the criticism and it is not substantive. I mean, it's hard to have substantive criticism of Kamala Harris because she's not she's doing, doing anything. She's vice president. So if I were her, I mean, if, if it's just getting feedback on how you're coming across rhetorically? Well, that could be some good feedback for you. For you, but also you should keep aware that, uh, that right. you're low-hanging fruit, and people are making fun of you because they don't have a lot of else to say substantively about you.
1: It's also theoretically something she could actually improve. <laughs> she doesn't face, you know, Joe Biden faces issues with, you know, trying to actually get legislation through Congress is impossible, and the Republican Party is out to get him. And Trump and everything. Yeah. Kamala Harris, there's no, there's no exterior force stopping her from being a more effective yeah. communicator. That's just entirely on her. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that she w- she does tune into Fox um, to to hear what's going on. Uh, there was no indication in the reporting that Joe Biden does the same. Um, he's just reliant on yeah. um, MSNBC, which is m- Morning Joe heavily. Covers um, threats to democracy, related stuff with Trump, uh, with RussiaGate, going back, you know, all the way to that. I, don't, I assume he's been a longtime viewer of Morning Joe. I can only imagine how that, you know, shaped his views on um, on a whole host of of issues from, you know, from the RussiaGate discourse and. Well, and I think all of more pernicious than
0: things. Morning Joe as a host is the idea that apparently, according to this reporting, he is more inclined to listen to particular guests that they have on with frequency, including kind of national security guests who, as you point out, are very hawkish. And so is he going to follow someone who he has come in contact with through Morning Joe as they continue to offer their opinions throughout, um, throughout the public space? And additionally, Axios reporting says that he sometimes has one-on-one meetings with mm-hmm. guests that he finds to be particularly informed or compelling from Morning Joe. So it really is a way to get your foreign policy perspective literally in front of the president and have an incredible amount of influence. And I will say, I I would give credit to Kamala Harris for watching Fox News. There's no indication, as you said, that Biden did it or that Trump has ever tuned into MSNBC (laughs) or CNN or, God forbid, an actual progressive outlet to see what other people in the world uh, think of his own policymaking.
1: Again, it goes to show we have two very, very elderly men running to be the next president of the United States. They're... Media consumption habits, their viewing habits, they're watching cable news, political. Te- it's all. It's just television. Are they listening to podcasts? Are they are they getting their news from social media or YouTube or any of the uh, newsletters? All of the stuff that forms the new media ecosystem that that we're a part of and we're, we're a small part of. There's all those interesting, exciting voices out there that they are not. Uh, if this isn't, you know, broadly indicative of how they get their news, news that shapes their views, mm-hmm. it is totally in that older mindset, traditional mindset, uh, even though there's so much out there. And again, that's another downside of having uh, political uh, candidates who are that old. Yeah, that for they're sure. Missing, that they're missing all of this wonderful banter. Uh, <laughs> I would just love for them to tune in every now and then. Yeah, would that be that's, nice? That's
0: the pitch. <laughs> T- tune into Rising for banter and more, including tomorrow.
1: Yes, when Brianna and I will be back here for Tuesday to bring you tomorrow's uh, headlines. We don't know what they are yet because tomorrow
0: has not yet taken place. Be <laughs> sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Take care.